there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just spoke with Jonathan Stern about his new book, MP3, The Meaning of a Format. This was published in 2012 with Duke University Press. The book itself takes on the MP3 as a thing, as a phenomenon, as a way of thinking about and mapping out hearing, pleasure, sensation, standardization, and it situates it within a deep history that stretches back to psychoacoustics in the early 20th century and moves all the way forward to issues of file sharing, of mashups, and lots of other kinds of phenomena that surround and circulate among um, sort of MP3s as objects and as issues in contemporary society. The book works really well on a number of different levels. Not only does he, and you'll hear us talking about this in the ensuing conversation, regularly in each chapter introduce us to a way of conceptually thinking about listening, about hearing, about the MP3, and about ways of understanding, perceiving, and conceptualizing music. But he's also offering us narratives that are at times very moving, very disturbing, or really funny. And so the book itself works in a number of different ways, regardless of what kinds of field you're coming from when you come to the book. It's a really fascinating account if you're interested in contemporary music. It's fascinating if you're interested in history of technology. And it's fascinating if you're interested in the idea of a cat telephone. And by cat telephone, I don't mean a telephone for cats. What I do mean will be um, clear to you later on in the interview. So I really enjoyed the book. I learned a ton from it. It was really a pleasure to talk with Jonathan about it. And I hope you enjoy as well. We're here today to talk with Jonathan Stern about his new book, MP3, The Meaning of a Format. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Jonathan, and thanks so much for making time during what I know is a very busy time in this semester to talk with me today about your awesome new book. Thank you. So, Jonathan, can you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background? How did you come to the field of of sound studies and in particular looking at the kinds of technologies of sound studies and their histories? Um, well, I was doing a bachelor's, an interdisciplinary bachelor's in the humanities at the University of Minnesota um, at the time that they were sort of converting to this uh, fancy cultural studies program. And this was uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and we were reading a lot of stuff on vision and modernity and how visuality is tied to all these features of modern life. Um, but as a musician and someone just generally interested in sound, I knew that there was a story to be told about sound as well. Now, as a naive undergraduate, I just assumed that we hadn't been assigned those texts. And so uh, when I went to write my undergrad thesis, which is like a cliche of undergraduate cultural studies theses, uh, it was on Muzak and shopping malls. Um, I go to the library thinking, well, chapter one is literature review on sound and modern life. And there just wasn't that much there. And so I still wrote the thesis on Muzak and shopping malls and actually turned into the very first piece I ever published in the journal Ethnomusicology. It's called Sounds Like the Mall of America. Um, but it gave me the idea for the dissertation. Now, the technology end of it, and even the like more historical rather than theoretical, I sort of grew into over the course of grad school. I wound up doing a PhD in communication studies. 
And I got interested in the technology end, both because there's just a sort of childlike, wow, you know, I can't believe this stuff actually works. Uh, it seems so magical. Uh, but also because technologies leave huge paper trails. And so um, when I started working on my dissertation, it was a re- if I want to understand how people thought about sound and culture and what it meant to, to hear and to listen, uh, people trying to figure out what a telephone was or what a phonograph was seemed like a really good place to get to that story. Now, of course, there's lots of people since then. Emily Thompson was going through the same thing, but went to architectural acousticians to ask the same questions. Um, uh, so there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, but I found the media angle particularly, uh, it spoke to me and it gave me, uh, it gave me a lot to work with. So, um, yeah, so, uh, that led to a dissertation on the history of the possibility of reproducing sound, uh, which eventually became the basis of my first book, the audible past cultural origins of sound reproduction, uh, which as the, title suggests explores the uh, cultural origins of the possibility for reproducing sound with technologies like sound recording radio telephones mm-hmm. now the book that we're talking about today moves specifically to studying the mp3 and the mp3 in particular as a historical cultural, mm-hmm. conceptual and social phenomenon, mm-hmm. among many other ways of understanding this really interesting issue of format and technology and experience and mm-hmm. we'll talk about this over the course of our time today how did you come to focus a book and, and decide to do a book length project in particular on this particular topic can you situate this within your larger research trajectory for sure so it's um, I sort of stumbled into it so the first thing that happened after the audible past came out because there's a sort of tease in the in the um conclusion about sort of new media people said well what is your angle on new media and so i started realizing that it would be behoove me to actually seriously consider uh newer sound technologies and of course i'm just interested in digital um sound technologies as well and the mp3 was interesting to me because um, as a technology it has a mathematical model of the gaps and absences in the human listener written into its code essentially not exactly it's really written into the code of the encoder we'll get into what that means later but um, this thing was built around um, a model of a human listening subject and I said well where did that subject come from how does it work what what is it doing there and what can that tell us about um the broader sort of culture of sound and hearing and listening um and so i wrote an article uh, well i wrote an essay and i gave it as a talk in a few places and i started to talk to several people said you know you should really do a short book on this this would be really great and so i said yeah a short book on this that would be that would be wonderful because my first book is um quite long and so I thought I was going to write a short book, but I immediately ran into this problem, which was um, this listener, this listener hiding out, or or even the you could say the shadow of a listener hiding out in the um, perceptual model in the MP3 standard, it comes out of a field called psychoacoustics. Um, Psychoacoustics is one of the dominant ways of understanding hearing that developed over the course of the 20th century. Very little of its history had been written. 
to that point. And um, I had a lot of conversations with a scholar uh, named Mara Mills, who teaches at New York University, uh, who is one of the v- very few other people who was super interested in this uh, um, in this question. Uh, so, what started out as a history of what is now a twenty-year-old format uh, turned into a hundred-year history of a twenty-year-old format. Because to answer where did that listener come from? Well, it comes from a set of movements that really started at Bell Labs in the 1910s, right? So um, the conceit of the book is that it's a history of the MP3, but you don't even really get to anything like the technology inside the MP3. Well, there's the introduction, but after the introduction, it takes till chapter three before we actually meet any engineers who are building anything like the technology that'll wind up in the MP3. And that's because of this longer trajectory and because I really am interested in this sort of hearing subject and and where it comes from. Great. Now, this is um, a very, among many other kinds of work that the book does, it does give a really satisfying history of not just this format, this form, this object, the MP3 is a thing or different kinds of things, but also the kinds of sensibilities, the kinds of practices and concepts that were necessary for us to get to the point of the emergence of the MP3. Um, Uh So we'll get to that. Now, early on in the book, you make a comment that I think is a great place for us to start off, and it's a great place for us to talk a little bit about one of what will go on to be a, quite a number of really interesting and I think very widely applicable concepts that you are introducing for listeners or for listeners right now and readers <clears throat> of the book who may not be familiar with this field or who may be familiar with this field and are you're giving them a new way of thinking about it. So let's start in with this. You call you, you or you mention rather at the early part of the book that the history of the MP3 belongs to a general history of compression. So let's talk a little bit about that. Can you start us off by uh, talking a little bit about what that means? What is compression, first of all, for listeners who don't really know much about this field? And why does this loom so large um, in the history of this object for you? Why mention this at the very beginning of the book? All right, that's a great question. Okay, so the simplest slug, I'll give a a uh, different. Te- I can't give a non-technical analogy, so I'll give a different technical analogy. Um, in this is and this is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This is not a very accurate one, but compression is the equivalent of rolling up your clothes to and squeezing them tightly to fit more of them into the suitcase before you take the flight somewhere. Um, it is a way of trying to um, make representations, I guess you could say, appropriate to or available to different kinds of communications infrastructures, and at the same time, transforming those infrastructures through the kinds of representations that they carry. So what does that mean? What that means is, I mean, in the case of the MP3 very specifically, um, they wanted to be able to transmit digital audio in real time over digital lines in the 1980s. But the problem is the compact disc standard basically produced a stream of audio that was too big. It was too much. It wouldn't fit in the pipe. Um, you know, it'd be like trying to drive a truck in the bike lane on a, on a street or something. Uh, and so they had to figure out a way how to make the files smaller and so to make the stream of data moving through the digital pipe smaller. 
Um, and so compression is the name for the process that uh, through which you accomplish that. Now, it turns out that there are many different kinds of compression in the history of communications, and this is just one. Um, but, uh, but I realized that this was a really important thing to sort of pause and reflect on for a number of reasons. One is when I was doing this, I mean, I was working on this book for quite a while and I would give talks on different parts of the research and I would always get this question, this very perplexed question. And would go something like this from an audience member. So we've had, you know, over a hundred years of progress in sound recording and sound reproduction and an MP3 sounds worse than a recording on a compact disc. How did that happen? How do we, you know, with all this progress, how do we still have this sort of not as good sounding thing? Now, there's a lot packed into that question, um, including whether the person asking it could actually tell the difference between a CD and an MP3 of the same song if we played it on a normal system in that room at that moment. Um, uh, but the, the, the force behind that question is something that I call in the book the general history of verisimilitude. And even though people in many different fields, media studies, history of science, history of technology, cultural studies, everybody's very critical of these, these sort of blithe narratives of uh, progress or what the historians like to call Whig histories of technology, right? Where everything sort of evolves towards a, a general state of better over the course of historical development. But the, there's one place where we don't generally um, critique that, and that is around media and consumer electronics more generally, I would say. Uh, so that, you know, people say, well, of course, development in sound recording tends towards higher definition or higher fidelity, uh, which are themselves very fraught terms, but we'll leave them for now. And uh, so anything that doesn't do that is a kind of aberration. Now, that progress narrative is one that uh, we constantly hear from advertisers and from the media uh, themselves. Uh, but, of course, it's also one that uh, shows up in critiques of media more generally, right? The idea that the problem with media is that they're not like the fullness of face-to-face -face interaction. Now, of course, people who actually study face-to-face -face interaction say it's much more fraught and messy, and it's not nearly as phenomenally full as some of the media theorists seem to think it is. Uh, but um, but this idea of media as trying to reproduce reality as it is and failing is sort of this tragic side of this progress history or the what I call a general history of verisimilitude. So I said, well, that's fine, but there's that doesn't if you if you tell the history that way, then something like an MP3 is a paradox. Except it's not a paradox. It's something. It's it's something that's a very common engineering phenomenon. When you think about media not as these sort of representation machines designed to reproduce the experience of live, and you don't think about them that way, and instead you say, well, these are engineered, large-scaled, networked technologies, we start to think about, well, what resources are scarce, what resources are abundant, what's valuable, what's precious. And one of the things that's almost always precious in uh, whether we're talking about a phone system, recording devices, hard drives, anything. The thing that's precious is space. Mm -hmm. So what can you fit into the space that you have available? 
And with, uh, with an MP3, this was a very practical answer to a problem that engineers have been asking at least since the telegraph, right? And you can think about it really in really banal terms. Why does film spool or audio tape spool? Uh, why do records spin? Uh, uh, why do books fold? Why do letters fold? All of these are space-conserving technologies uh, in one way or another. Uh, Harold Innes, um, writing, in, uh, writing, uh, writing about uh, early communication technologies, talks about the importance of the codex, uh, which is a, you know, a, book, a bound book like we have today, versus the scroll in terms of moving scripture around in the ancient world just for portability. So this, this problem of making stuff movable, making stuff fit the storage resources we have, uh, is a really old one. Um, and, uh, uh, it's one I've been thinking about a lot, not just, uh, not just with the MP3, uh, but I wanted to posit the existence of this general history of compression, uh, so that we could say that the MP3 is really part of a much longer term trend in media history and not just an aberration, but rather, um, this move towards conservation of space and negotiating the relationship of human perception to um, uh, large-scale media technologies is a, it's really a long-term thing. And so, uh, so that's, that's more or less what I was trying to do with that. Great. Thank you so much. So as we, you know, sticking also to this early part of the book before we move on into the um, sequential steps by which and through which we get to the MP3 as a thing, sort of midway mm-hmm. through the book. Uh, I'd like to ask you another question about what I take to be really a really crucial point um, that you raise or that you suggest we ought to think about um, early on in the book. And this is a shift from thinking about the MP3 in terms of media to thinking about the MP3 in terms of format. Indeed, the title of the book is The Meaning of a Format. There's no you know, media um, in the title of the book. And this seems to me to be a very significant, a very important and perhaps a very um, potentially widely ramifying move um, to make uh, in terms of the way we think about this in larger context. So could you talk a little bit about a, a little bit about that? Why is this so crucial to do in your eyes and in what way might this change the way we think about or what we think about when we're thinking about media and the MP3? Yeah, okay. So um First thing I want to say is I'm not arguing for format studies. Uh, I mean, people can study other formats. That'd be great. PDFs, for instance, would be a good one. And uh, Lisa Gittleman's working on that right now. So, uh, sure, it's great to study formats, but I'm not saying, oh, well, we should forget media. We should all go study formats now. Uh, What I'm really trying to say is that for... Most of the 20th century, the scalar dimensions of media were relatively consistent in academic analysis. And what I mean by that is when you say something like television or radio or film, these things conjure an image of a sort of consumer electronics device or, in the case of film, an an ensemble of exhibition technologies connected to an industrial structure that's relatively stable and which um, uh, which has a set of repeatable social relations tied to it. Okay, and that's basically give or take, what a medium is, 
Uh, now, what's different about what's happening now is that most of the major changes are not happening at that level. So if you were thinking in terms, for instance, of visible consumer electronics, you would say, well, the really important shift is the mobile phone or going back a little further, the iPod. And certainly those are important historical developments. But if you just look at those things, what you're missing is all this interesting stuff that's happening precisely above and below the level of uh, consumer electronics. So uh, you could say above the level, you have uh, massive, you know, sort of massive changes in infrastructures and what the... um, what the telecom policy people call media convergence, where we used to think of things as separate technologies are now themselves um, bound up by the same technical and industrial infrastructures. Um, And then beneath the level of consumer electronics, uh, the format is the thing that makes stuff operate with other stuff, uh, makes it to conform to various standards, but also is the thing that negotiates the relationship between the operational procedures in the device and what we might call the sensuous experience of whatever, if we're talking about a media technology, of whatever the media technology provides. And so the format for me is precisely the level at where uh, on one hand the technical and on the other hand the subjective get negotiated. Um, And that's why I thought it was an exciting uh, way to go. And it sounds, it's a little bit better than saying the meaning of a standard because that term is so tied up with the policy literature. Although I think standards are super important and of course I, I spent a lot of time talking about them that's right so to stick with um, for a moment my, my last question about this early part of the book to stay um, with the importance of format on some level and to sort of kick it up to a bit of a meta level um, one of the things that's really interesting in the book is that you mention at various parts of the book that you did conduct oral interviews mm-hmm. as part of your research and you mentioned early on that you're working with not only a documentary archive and I'm using archive in the broad sense of here um, yes. sort of a, a collection of documents um, but also you conducted oral interviews for this now because we're talking about the importance of a sensitivity to and a close attention to the sensuous experience of media and of formats in particular I mean this it raises the an obvious question for me that's a really fascinating um, way of for me to think about the process of making this book and that is the format of your own research so what I want to ask is um, in terms of your conducting these oral interviews did you find in the process of working on this book that those that that experience that that process of conducting oral interviews rather than just sticking with a documentary archive changed in any fundamental qualitative way the kind of argument you were making or the way that you were approaching the creation of the narrative in the book absolutely well okay so there's the (laughs) there's the reason so so i came to the book as somebody that worked with documents and worked with the dead and there were times when I was working on this project where I'd say things to my friends like, boy, I really miss the dead. Uh, because, I mean, the dead take most of their secrets to the grave, but the ones that they give up, they give generously and freely to you. The living are much more complicated. Uh, and, you know, when you start talking to the living people, you trade the problems of history for the problems of anthropology. 
uh, and the oral history interview is a very sort of fraught thing to do because these people, you know, they don't know you. How do you build up trust in a, a short period of time? Uh, how do you convey what your questions are, how you think about them? Um, you know, do you get on with the people? Do you not get on with them? It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a messy thing and it's a, you know, time-wise quite compressed usually. It's precisely non-participant observation. Uh, so methodologically, it was a, it was a good challenge for me. I was an undergrad. I'd done some stuff with living people, but um, but this was certainly the most sustained sort of engagement with it. But the other thing, the reason why I really needed the living for this was there was so much tacit knowledge in the documentary record. And you mentioned that you that um, you know the you use the term archive loosely, and that's precisely correct. When you look at the notes to the book, it's a lot of published research, actually, but published in you know fairly esoteric, well, not esoteric places to the people who published it. Obviously, you know, engineering journals, um, acoustics journals, psychoacoustics journals. I mean, they're not they're not particularly esoteric, except that they're in other disciplines. Um, there were a couple cases where I actually did try to go look at this or that person's papers and didn't have a lot of success. Um, you know, and then published standards, um, newspaper accounts, things like that. So it's it's more like an archive I made than an archive I went to. Uh, but the, the tacit knowledge was hugely important because it, because it was an insider discourse, right? So if you're reading engineering journals, there's a lot that people assume that they don't need to talk about because we all sort of agree. And I mean, it's the same in any discipline. It's just the effect of disciplinarity, basically. And so I really wanted to hear from the people themselves how they thought about hearing and listening, how they understood the relationship between um, psychoacoustics and what they were doing and where they got their own sort of methods and worldviews from. And I mean, some of the most profitable discoveries in the book come out of this. In fact, some of the secondary literature comes on the recommendation of my subjects. So the discussion of Zwicker and Feldkeller came from my very first interview. Um, the uh, Well, we'll get into all this later. I, I, can, I can tell you stories when we get there. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But, you know, I found the other thing is, you know, engineers like academics love to talk about their work. Uh, you know, they're genuine, they're intellectuals, they're genuinely interested and excited by it. And so uh, they were very, mostly very happy to tell their stories and gave me way more material than I could possibly deal with. And so the one thing that's very in common between interview-based research and our, you know, old-fashioned go-to-the-archive, dig-through-the-series-and-folders kind of research is this sense of being completely overwhelmed. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, they just gave me so much more than I could possibly use, but that's good. You know, that's the, that's the gift of, uh, um, uh, that's the gift of abundance. And it's, uh, I suppose much better than the alternative for us. So it was hugely profitable for me and it certainly affected the way I think about my work going forward. Great. So, so as we move forward into the chapters of the book, the first chapter 
take this into a field that you've already mentioned in your early comments, and that's the field of psychoacoustics. So psychoacoustics begins to take its modern form in the 1910s, and one of the interesting things that's happening here is that it's using sound technologies to test and to describe the mechanism of human hearing. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, the sort of mm-hmm. material ramifications of that and the conceptual ramifications mm-hmm. of that, not just for humans, but also for cats, um, as we get a little bit further. Yes. Um, so I just a little warning there for any listeners who are cat lovers like me, and I'm being very ginger in the way or gingerly in the way I'm talking about this now because my cat's sitting right next to me. We're going to have a, a cat moment, I think. <laughs> Come moving oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, there's much to be said about cats when we get to that section. But before we get to the cats, we have to get to the telephones. So um, you make, you're very um, convincing early on in this book in making the point that, as you put it, the aesthetic and technological debt, um, there's, a, there's a pretty significant technological and aesthetic debt owed by recording to telephony. And uh-huh. AT&T becomes a really important part of this here. Now, um, you talk about the crucial um, role that AT&T is playing in this story early on in this first chapter – when you talk about the way that they're actually establishing a mode of measuring the ear in terms of frequency and value, mm-hmm. and they wind up, in doing this, they wind up being able to monetize um, something important and generating what you're calling perceptual capital. Now, there are so many really interesting parts of this part of the story, um, the importance of telephony, the idea of measurement in terms of frequency and value, and this idea of perceptual capital. So can you talk for us a little bit about what's happening with A&T in this generation of perceptual capital at this part of the story? Why is that important to understand this now, given what happens next and what's going on there? Okay. Uh, well, that's a lot of stuff. Yes. So, so perceptual capital, maybe we can well, there. What, what do you mean by that, and, and how is that working in this part of the story? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, the, ch- the chapter is called Perceptual Technics, uh, and I'll actually start with that term, Perfect. which is basically the tuning of – it's the reciprocal tuning of media systems to perception, but then the tuning of perception to media systems. And in the chapter, basically, I argue – the the big loss is that everything we think we know about hearing in the state of nature is the result of the interaction between ears and media. So there's that media word. It comes right back after I've rejected it in the introduction. And the reason I say that is because hearing research got a huge infusion of capital from AT&T Bell Labs uh, once they got interested in basic research. So basically, the story goes something like this. Um, Bell is aspiring to become a legal monopoly in the United States. Uh, Bell has a number of research operations which get consolidated as uh, Bell Labs in the early 19-teens. I don't have the page right in front of me. And even though I do history, on my feet, I'm not great with dates. No problem. Or names. But look it up in the book look it up in the book exactly. it's there i was very careful yes, um, <laughs> so um so in the early teens they 
they consolidate the research operations. They create this basic research operation. One of the things they very quickly get interested in is human hearing. And this is precisely where this general history of compression thing comes in, right? Because if AT&T was thinking in terms of verisimilitude, they would say, how can we make the phone more beautiful, more fulsome, more available to the human ear? But instead, they say a different thing. The question they ask is, what is absolutely necessary for you at the other end of the phone line to understand what I am saying? And vice versa. What is the minimum amount of signal necessary for intelligibility? And in order to understand, in order to do this, you have to study the ear, you have to study how signals work, and you have to study, to some extent, the understanding of language. And so they got interested in basic hearing research as a result of and on the basis of a desire to um, facilitate the, the uh, uh, faster and more efficient transmission of signals. And you say, well, why does this matter? Well, if AT&T is trying to become a monopoly, one of the things that happens to monopolies, sanctioned monopolies in, in the United States at this time is price regulation, right? So if the government says you can be just one phone company for everybody, they're also going to closely regulate the price to end users. Um, but, you know, a standard rule of capitalism then as it is now is if you don't grow, you die. So how are they going to grow? How are they going to increase their profits? Well, one place is precisely through getting more value out of their infrastructure. There's that word again. So they start doing research to see what the minimal amount of speech is that the human ear can hear. And over the course of the teens and 20s, you get all these basic studies and things like the frequency sensitivity of normal ears. Um, <laughs> you get um, really wonderful developments in technologies of filtering and amplification. Um, and here I'm citing work by uh, Mara Mills on the hearing study. She does wonderful stuff on um, studies that were also conducted in uh, collaboration with the New York League for the Hard of Hearing. Emily Thompson talks a lot about the amplification technologies and, and sound processing stuff. And so they do all this work. And they, by the end of the 20s, come up with basically a system that says, look, we're transmitting all this signal, but we only really need to transmit about a quarter of the signal that we thought we needed in order for people to understand speech at the other end. So there's a limited range of frequencies we need to transmit. And if we just transmit that limited range, we can actually fit, theoretically, four phone calls into a single line where we could only fit one before. So um, so you say, okay, so what is the perceptual capital to answer your original question? So the Perceptual capital, it's actually, I mean, it's more accurately imperceptual capital. What they've done is they've monetized their users not hearing signals. That's such an interesting idea. Right? So it's a completely, I mean, it's negative. I'm stating it negative, negatively, but that's precisely, it's important to do it that way. Um, Not so much for debates in history of science, but for debates in media studies that are happening right now. So people who are writing about new media, social media, um, have a lot to say about free labor. Right. So, for instance, the value of something like Amazon.com is very much a result of its users' reviews, which are the given freely. Um, so, 
But this is, this is the converse of that. This isn't free labor. This is extraction. It's more like resource extraction, mm-hmm. right? Because what AT&T is saying is the limits of your hearing can be used as a resource against which we can leverage our, our phone lines, our infrastructure, so by imagining the hearing subject as more limited they are in essence um, able to um, make their own infrastructure considerably more valuable and transmit more phone lines more phone calls on a single line and so perceptual capital is precisely the the point at which they are um in marxist terms uh, it's it's just a production of relative surplus value where you um you introduce a new process into the production process whereby um uh whereby some some efficiency um means uh, it's actually cheaper to produce whatever you were producing before uh so it's not it's not i mean it's not unique in economic history but it's fascinating as a perceptual problem mm-hmm. um because again we usually do think of media history in terms of like oh well of course everybody's making everything higher fidelity and more realistic and more immersive and we're getting more and more mediatized but getting more and more mediatized or being more and more subjects of media systems might also mean that those systems shape the very questions we ask about our hearing and at the same time make use not just of what we can hear but what we can't hear as economically valuable and even technologically significant so it's a really it's a really central point to the to the book Um, and i actually struggled you know because you ask about process i struggled for a long time with calling what what to call it and perceptual techniques was like the best of a lot of not great terms (laughs) you know at a certain point it's like i have to turn in the chapter i have to finish this i have to move on Um, but i went through a lot so there was a point where there was this whole detour through foucault and biopower but it's precisely not biopower biopower is about leveraging capacity it's more about states than companies and it's uh yeah it's precisely precisely the opposite right this is about leveraging incapacity Awesome. Thank you so much. So as we just purely um, just to to keep track of our time, I'm not going to ask you to talk about the cats, but I'm going to mention the cats. And so, no, no, we have to talk about the okay, cats I, a little yeah, bit. Okay. We have we to do, talk a little bit about the cats. About, okay, so we'll talk about the cats. So we're, we're now in chapter two. Chapter two mm-hmm. looks at the process by which psychoacoustics becomes intertwined with telephony and hearing, and it starts us off with the cats. So you describe early on in this chapter an experiment at Princeton University with live cats in what what's called or what you call a cat telephone. Now this is um, emphatically not a telephone for cats. It's no. a phone made of cats. So do you want to talk about that? And um, let's talk about that a little bit and the importance of that to the larger story of this chapter. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. So uh, what what is a cat telephone? A cat telephone is a regular telephone where they switch out the microphone. Instead, they use the ear and the auditory nerve of a living cat as the microphone for the cat for the telephone. Uh. Now, the reason they did this, and this was very upsetting to my cats as well. We'll discuss. We'll discuss the actual living cat angle in a minute. Uh, 
the uh, the reason this was important was uh, this was done by Ernest Glenn Weber and Charles W. Bray, two uh, Princeton psychologists who were students of the unfortunately named Professor uh, uh, Eugene. Was it Eugene or Edwin? I've seen it both ways. Anyway, the unfortunately named Professor Boring at Harvard. And Professor Boring was one of the last sort of strong proponents of the telephone theory of hearing, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, you know, it's tremendous simplification, but the, the, the ear works like a telephone. And so the idea was that the auditory nerve actually worked like a phone line. But you can't the the surgery's not good for the cats uh and you can't uh do that to live people so cats were cheap they were available they were commonly used in psychoacoustics still are uh because their auditory systems even though the frequency range is different um their auditory systems are similar enough to human beings um and so they wired this cat in the phone system and then they're speaking into the cat's ear and they're basically restaging the telephone's primal scene so you know the famous story with bell and watson watson come here i want to see you and that's how they knew that the phone worked because watson could hear him in the other room uh well that's what they did here is they set up this phone and they put i mean i don't know who was where but i imagine them putting bray in the soundproof room and whoever's in the other room speaking into the cats here come here i want to see you uh and there you have this restaging now this is a very garish thing of course the cat isn't going to survive this kind of uh this this kind of thing and uh and they even kill the cat just to make sure that the uh, system's wired upright. Now, why is this important, besides the fact that it's disturbing? Uh, well, it's important for several reasons. One is that uh, they thought they proved the, the, uh, the telephone theory of hearing. Uh, now, in point of fact, S.S. Stevens showed a couple of years later that they didn't, that they effectively they wired the cat up wrong. <laughs> But (laughs) it's unfortunate. Well, you know, it's unfortunate for them, more unfortunate for the cat. Um, But the the experiment's fascinating for its absolute equivalence between life force and um, communication technology and what it carries, right? So the life force going down the cat's auditory nerve is the same as the electricity going in the system. And so intellectually, it's a predecessor of things like cochlear implants. But today, if you open up an intro to the psychology of hearing, for instance, Brian C.J. Moore's, um, the first thing he says is that hearing is a sort of information processing. And so here you have a literalization of that equivalence. And they went much too far, obviously, and it didn't work. But, uh, but in the figure of the cat telephone, you have uh, this wonderful sort of moment of exchange uh, between uh, the living and the machinic uh, in, a, in a communication infrastructure. So, so that's the story of the CAT telephone. There's a couple other things to note. Uh, one is that I did actually have a CAT sitting on my desk for most of the first draft of that chapter. Um, he's no longer with us, not because I made him into a phone, but just old age. Um, but he did not seem to approve. And then the very last day I was revising the chapter um, at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, they had a cat that sort of wandered the grounds. That is the only day that cat entered my office the entire year that I know of uh, was when I was finishing that chapter. So, Well, the new book's an STS cat that's sitting right now is also a cat from the Stanford Cat Network. So, she's What? 
<laughs> yeah, we can talk about that later. Um, but yes, yeah, she also comes from Stanford. Oh, fascinating. So, so okay. Anyway, I had to talk about the cats. <laughs> That's great. So I want to make sure that by the end of our time, we actually get to the MP3. So what I'm going to do now is horrible. And I'm not going to ask you to talk about some of the most fascinating parts of this middle section of the book. I'm just going to mention them for listeners and encourage listeners to go and, and read the book, which is hopefully what this will result in. So the, this chapter with the cats goes on to describe the ways in which, as you already sort of alluded to, telephony and psychoacoustics actually start defining hearing as a problem of information. And the chapter looks really closely at what happens as these ideas developed for the telephone system go on to uh, influence cybernetics and information theory, or to sort of, if not influence them, then there's a really close relationship between what's happening here and the development of rather mathematical theories of communication and cybernetics and Claude Shannon, and it's a really fascinating part of the story. Um, this moves us into also a next chapter, and again, I'm, I'm going to mention this so that we have time to get to the MP3, that looks at the psychoacoustic concept of masking. Okay. So masking, um, masking is the idea. There's you describe two types here, um, auditory and temporal. And this is the idea that if two sounds of similar frequency are either played together or are played one after another, and one is significantly quieter, people are going to hear the louder one. And so what winds up happening is this this phenomenon gets built into um, ultimately the technology and the concept of the MP3. Um, in a really interesting way. Now, you you use this concept and develop this here in this chapter to raise um, another really interesting idea. We've already talked about perceptual techniques, and this is the idea of perceptual coding. Um, can you talk a little bit about perceptual coding here? Why is this important, and how does this get us ultimately to being able to think the MP3? Okay, so... And my apologies for glossing over... Oh, no, 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 no. Purely for time. No, 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 no. I can can go on forever. (laughs) So... um, The perceptual coding. Okay, so... The first thing that's important about masking in the, in, uh, the 50s and 60s, so researchers knew about masking from sometime in the 19th century. Uh, but in the 50s and 60s, they start developing predictive theories of masking. In other words, being able to say, um, well, we know that these, this signal has this frequency content. Well, the ear is going to react to it this way, and here are the parts that the person's not going to hear. And uh, that's called the theory of critical bands. And critical bands don't actually exist, but they're sort of heuristic used by psychoacousticians to say, here are the ways that frequencies sort of interact with one another. Um, So there are a number of people doing various kinds of digital coding research in the 1960s and especially the 1970s, especially around the coding of speech. Uh, And one of the people I talked to was Bishnu Atal. Bishnu worked at uh, AT AT&T Bell Labs. He was an engineer. Um, I also spoke with Joseph Hall, who was also involved in in this work. He was a psychoacoustician. And they were trying to develop a technology called predictive, linear predictive coding, which is an antecedent of the technology used in mobile phones and also in the Skype call. Uh, Basically, the fantasy was that on the transmission end of a phone call, you could completely decompile speech. And on the receiving end, you'd have a computer. And the computer would predict 
the content of the speech. Um, so you'd have the actually you'd have a computer on both sides, and so on the transmitting end, the computer would make run the same program, make the same prediction. And all the computer would transmit over the phone line is the difference between what it predicted and what you actually said as, a, as expressed mathematically, right? So it would transmit almost nothing down the line except this prediction error, which would allow the reproducing computer to uh, recompile your speech. And this this, I mean, this is an old dream with uh, with Bell Labs. The vocoder uh, in the 1930s is a sort of earlier instantiation of this. But at this point, they're using full-on computers and stuff. So linear predictive coding and then a slightly more sophisticated version called adaptive predictive coding not working out very well. Uh, it's super noisy. And both Hall and Atal start saying, well, normally you think of noise as something that masks other sounds, right? So think about you're in a loud restaurant and you can't even hear the people with you at the table because all the noise around the room is masking what they, they're, they're saying. But what if you could take the noise produced by the encoding process um, and you could hide it somewhere, right? So you could use the signal to mask the noise instead of the other way around. And so this was really the first instantiation of what engineers, and I want to be clear, I didn't coin the term. It's not exactly clear who did. J.J. Uh, Johnston uh, uses the term perceptual entropy as early as, I think, 1987. Uh, so I don't know exactly who coins the term perceptual coding, but this is what's happening in Bell Labs. At the same time at MIT Lincoln Labs, a guy named Michael Krasner is also trying to deal with the noise of digital coding, except he's using music music instead of speech and comes to a similar conclusion. And then um, by 1977, a German professor named Dieter Seitzer also comes to a similar conclusion, uh, saying this is how we could transmit digital music over telephone lines if we somehow made use of um, perception, accounted for perception, we could make the size of the signal much smaller. So perceptual coding is a sort of digitally coded um, uh, descendant of perceptual techniques. If AT&T says, well, we're not going to transmit the part of speech that you don't need to understand uh, what's being said over the phone line. In fact, they can even translate a little more, less than you need to understand, which is why, for instance, when you're, um, well, at least us Canadians, when you're giving your postal code over to somebody to the phone, over some to someone over the phone, uh, if there's an S or an F, you have to say S isn't in Sam, F is in Foxtrot, because the phone doesn't actually reproduce the difference between those sounds very well. Um, so perceptual coding goes a step further and says, well, we could actually code in the limits of human hearing, and not just around the edges, as perceptual technics does, saying, well, we're going to band limit this. But they can actually go inside the signal and pull out little bits. Mm-hmm. that aren't going to be heard or aren't necessary to be heard. Uh, and so that's um, that's where that technology comes from. It comes from changing attitudes toward noise. It comes from the use of computers as audio media, and it's highly dependent on this sort of predictive model of masking that we can sort of create a digital model of an idealized ear's behavior. Great. Right. 
And there's a really wonderful, um, for not just for people. So this book has a lot in it, not just for people who are interested in sound studies, but as we talked about the history of experimentation with the cats, the history of all kinds of things here, uh, we have a history of dentistry as well. And so I'll just drop this little hint in there for listeners along, um, or in the part of the chapter that you're talking about the spreading of the idea that noise can be used and manipulated instead of eliminated. There's this really wonderful vignette about an attempt to use this um, for dentistry as an audio analgesic. And so I'll just mention that for listeners as a little teaser to, to go look that up in the book because it's also a really wonderful, um, one of many wonderful moments of the narrative. Okay, so as we move forward and to sort of bring us um, further into the book so that I don't take up two hours of your time, we have you have a really wonderful chapter here um, that looks at the MP3 format, as an, or two chapters rather, that looks at the MP3 as an exercise in standard making. So you tell the story in chapter four of... The way that in 1988, the International Organization for Standardization actually forms this group, the Moving Picture Experts Group, or MPEG, for anyone who didn't know what that stood for, Moving Picture Experts Group, to devise a standard for digital video and audio. And the next chapter talks about that process. How did they go about um, developing this standard? Um, and this part of this is... Um, given in a really wonderful account of what the series of listening tests were that were crucial to this standard-making process for the MPEG and that eventually result in the MP3. So there's this series in Chapter 5 of listening tests conducted in 1990 and 1991 that consists of this situation. I'll ask you to talk a little bit about this, whereby the consortium that's conducting these tests comes up with Um, four different candidates. So there are four different perceptual coding schemes they want to test. And they build each one of these schemes, each one of these schemes rather, into a coder decoder box or a codec. So what happens then is they set up this test and it's really, really interesting for thinking about the notion of who who gets to um, be a listener in these tests, what is the nature of these tests, and what are they listening to. So can you talk um, briefly for us, and I know it's going to be difficult to be brief because there's so much in this story, I and mean, this could be its own book um, in some ways. What's happening in this test? Who are the listeners who are um, brought in to do the testing to discover the standards? What are they listening to, and why does that matter? Okay, so the issue with the listening test is twofold. One has to do with standards exercises, and the other has to do with what they were trying to do with the MP3 versus what psychoacousticians wanted to do. Um, And I think that there's also an important story here for the history of experimentation, Mm -hmm. which is, um, of course, a big thing in in science studies more broadly. Um, So basically, they're doing these tests to do two things. One is it's a standard setting, exercise many different companies are participating they need to produce a form of objective uh, judgment that will um, allow them to be uh, rhetorically impartial in choosing one or another standard uh, for uh, the moving picture experts group audio standard so that's the first thing um 
so so there's a political issue at hand. How do you how do you actually enact neutrality in selecting among different aesthetic standards? But there's also an issue, and I don't know if it's an aesthetic issue or a technical issue or both, but it goes like this. Most of the research that was done on masking was done by psychoacousticians, and they used tones, they used noise bursts, and occasionally they would use speech. But of course, what MPEG was trying to do was create a way of compressing audio that would work to go with video um, or to be transmitted over uh, lines. So they weren't asking what's intelligible. They're asking what's pleasing or rather what's not pleasing uh, and trying to figure out how do we reproduce music? How do we produce speech in such a way that it still has some aesthetic value to it? So these are pretty complicated questions. How do you sort them out? Well, you need someone to listen in, um, you could say, a listener who listens in advance of a listening public as a sort of representative or a delegate for them within the standards exercise. And for this, they created this concept of the expert listener. So expert listeners, well, usually first there's the engineer just messing with the, the, um, with the technology saying, oh, well, that's... That sounds like crap. Let's try it this way. Um, but eventually they bring in people. Uh, Fraunhofer used a, uh, a woman who I believe was a violinist uh, in the local symphony for quite some time, although I never was able to get her name. I would have loved to talk to her about the uh, experiments, but uh, I couldn't get her name. Um, you could write a novel about these experiments, actually. Yeah, actually, you could. Fabulous um yeah. Format for a story. But anyway, go on. Yes. Well, okay. Yeah. In my next career. <laughs> um, so, uh, so by the time you get to the, the, the moving picture experts group test, the expert listeners are again the engineers or a subset of them. And if you actually look in the books that are the accounts of the tests, um, you get these long lists of people and what company they come from, right? So it's almost like a United Nations of sound. And so they have to choose program material. And I asked engineers, you know, well, how would you even decide what kind of music to use? And what they were going for was stuff that they felt was difficult to encode in other words, in, that, that challenged the encoder in one way or another. Um, but they published the lists of test recordings along with elaborate, I mean, I don't even know how to describe that testing diagram with no people in it in the book, but please go look at it. Yes. It's the level of technical detail is really, it's a, it's an astounding document. It's a, it's a representation of listening uh, with no people, right? It's all about here's how you produce objective listening with this sort of technical network. And there's headphones and there's, yeah, the people are just pushed out of the edges of the diagram. It's fascinating. Um, but uh, so so um, the engineers are really going for stuff. They say, well, it's stuff that's difficult to encode. But what I noticed in listening to the recordings that I was able to dig up is that they also picked recordings that conform to the standards of mediated sound. In other words, the speech sample sounded like good BBC radio or German radio um, or whatever language they were in, uh, like national radio language. The music samples were 
all well recorded, well mastered by the standards of the time. Um, and at least the ones I could hear. There were some that I couldn't hear that might have been exceptions, but you know, we take our chances on our sources and we make our generalizations. And here's mine. Mine is that the MP3 was built around mediaphilic sound. And this is a very interesting effect, which is. You know, we can debate about whether it's perfect or not. Well, we don't have to debate. It's not perfect. Even the people who invented it say it's not perfect. Uh, but it works pretty well most of the time. And what's amazing about it is how well it works on so much of the world's recorded music. And that's actually because most commercially recorded music conforms to a fairly narrow sonic aesthetic in terms of frequency balance, in terms of dynamic range, and in several other ways. And so by going for the mediaphilic sound, they actually were able to produce something that sort of reaches, it appears more universal than it is, in other words, because it conforms, um, it, it, it institutionalizes the aesthetics of a sort of globalized media system inside a new format. Awesome. And so, and for listeners who will go um, after our, after listening to this interview and read the book, and I hope all of them do because it's fabulous. I'll also mention as little teasers, there's a really wonderful account in this chapter of Suzanne Vega's Tom's Diner and the importance of this song. It's just a great story to um, to this testing process and also the implication of Suzanne Vega herself in the history of the MP3, which comes up in this um, in this part of the book. It's really fabulous. Also um, worthy of note here for um, for historians, really for any historians um, or any readers of this book, is how important annoyance was as part of oh, um, yeah. the creating of quality. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, the, these. Um, Expert listeners are sitting down and grading their experience as part of the standards-making process in terms of how annoying the sound was. And that itself is fabulous. I mean, that it's, I, I love that. Just the emergence yeah. of annoyance is kind of an um, object in this chapter is great. Yeah, yeah. Actually, let me say something about that. We'll Please. skip file sharing because... Uh, Oh, and you know yeah. what? We, we can talk as long as you want, so I just want to respect your time. But yeah, talk, talk about annoyance. Yeah, well, Go for no, it. No, it's fine. I'm annoyed with file sharing, so we'll, uh, we'll be brief on that. So this scale is derived from something called the hedonic scale, mm -hmm. as in hedonism. Uh, it was actually developed after World War II, well, in World War II, uh, was no, actually, it was developed in the 30s and then really perfected in World War II, where they were trying out different kinds of food uh, with American uh, servicemen. Uh, and so this idea of like displeasure as a measurement is precisely like if you have to think about large quantities of food that have to be preserved for a long time and can't be uh, uh, can't be refrigerated. Uh, you see where this is going, right? It's 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 like how do you, you know how bad do the green beans have to be before the GIs won't eat them, kind of thing. So what happens over over decades is that those people move out into consumer research. And so um, hedonics becomes a part of uh, many different fields. Uh, and actually, I've been reading about it. This is not research 
related really just interest i've been reading about it in food science and like at what point for instance does sweetness turn over from being wonderful in a flavor to being revolting uh there's all this work on that so the engineers you know rather than saying do you like this one or this one better they have the scale that goes from not noticeable to very annoying uh and i mean it replaces earlier psychoacoustic scales that went from in, inaudible to the threshold the pain so it has that sort of nice um well we're not going to say we like this we're just going to say it's not annoying so again sort of trying to get rid of the subjective pleasure but then it sort of sneaks in the back door uh through 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 annoyance as a as a kind of displeasure and when i was asking about you know well what does it matter you know what to you know i run with anthropologists i run with cultural studies people the first question i get from them is well but you know what about social differences these tests uh, race class gender sexuality sexual orientation and there's some stories in there about in the book about that as well but i remember jj johnston said no the first rule isn't that uh the first rule is don't annoy the listener so um this you know annoyance gets elevated to this sort of uh master uh transactional category in the uh, in the uh, acoustic research so yeah how do you how do you build pleasure through the absence of displeasure into a, into a technology that's right it's just such a fascinating part of this whole story i mean that is, you could expand that out to its own book probably it's totally awesome but but as i <laughs> there's so much in this book as i try to bring us um to a close here i'll just sort of mention what happens uh as we move into the story so after these standards uh or these these uh modes of testing for standards there's standards that are set in 1992 by mpeg after these tests that are happening in 90 and 91 and these standards include three different audio protocols that are called layers mp3 winds up being layer three of this standard and the book goes into in great really interesting detail what happens with layer two the relationships between these layers and the fact that it's actually kind of um, unusual uh, or it, it's surprising in some ways that this third layer actually rises and becomes um, so important relative to the other layers in some ways. But then you're demonstrating here that actually, if you look at the historical contingencies by which this happened, which include um, a hacker releasing the codec that MPEG um, had developed for MP3 online for free, you can sort of see the process through which um, this becomes uh, really clear as a historical phenomenon. So it's a really interesting historical story. There's all kinds of elements of this story that interact with and intersect with histories of file sharing, issues of privacy, and, and so many other um, really important and really fascinating parts of this story. So I urge listeners to go and to seek this out and to read this. The last thing, though, that I want to ask you about the book before we come to the concluding questions is something that's happening all also in this later part of the book, but that listeners may not be familiar with and that I think um, is one of these issues you raise that has potentially, as, as so many others that we've talked about, really wide-ranging or broad-ranging kinds of consequences for the way we think about techniques, the way we think about technology, and that's this idea of defining music as a certain kind of thing that you call a bundle of affordances. 
Mm. So this seems really productive to me, really interesting. It engages with ideas about materiality coming from studies of Heidegger and so on and so forth that people in a lot of different fields are engaging right now. And it really struck me as being particularly important. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of music as a bundle of affordances before we come to a close? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's actually a play on uh, uh, Simon Frith's idea of a song as a bundle of rights. Uh, where he's talking about uh, uh, music as intellectual property. So the last chapter is called, Is Music a Thing? And this is an old debate among music scholars. You have a certain strain of ethnomusicologists who say um, music is a social process. It doesn't have, like, any any attempt to make music into a thing is, um, uh, is politically problematic because it takes the social out of it. And then you have the, uh, the, uh, the like, the formalist musicologists who say, no, the music is the work. Right, it's a thing. It has a, it has an objectivity to it, and uh, a finer point gets put on this when you start thinking about recordings. So, what happens with digitization, where it's no longer a uh, a tangible thing you can hold in a hand? You hold in your hand. You can hold ten thousand songs in your hand, but it's you know, unless you're holding a forty-five or a thirty-three, it doesn't. It isn't the same level of like I, I'm holding the music in my hand. So, how do we think of music? Uh, um, uh, existence in the world is it just a process is it a thing well I say this is first of all I say that the answer to that question is really a social answer that a culture has to answer for itself um, and it's 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 one that um, at different times different industry actors for instance have taken uh, positions on um, so, for instance, the move now to, to cloud services to define music as a kind of service is to say it's less of a thing that you own and more a process that you partake in uh, versus, you know, in a, restrictive intellectual property rules that say, um, you know, you, you can only use this music that you purchased in this way and not that way. Um, so the the bundle of affordances. Well, affordance, of course, comes out of uh, ecological psychology. I'm forgetting the person's name right now because uh, it's the end of the day. That's okay. But People it, go read the book. You can look it up. I I I I, uh, I give due credit in the the notes. But uh, uh, what I like about affordance is uh, it's a sort of it's it's possibilities. It's like a gentle push. It's not a. It's not a determining thing. It's not a. It's not necessarily causal, but it's also not purely neutral. Uh, and so, when we think about uh, technology, right? There's this huge debate, never-ending in media studies between. Um, well, I mean, the 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 simplest way is technological determinism that sort of technologies cause historical or social change, and then you have the cultural determinists who say, well, no, they're just mere instruments, uh, and it's all about use. Um, and affordances is a way of sort of sidestepping the debate and saying, well, yeah, it's true, you can't really send an email with a pencil. But uh, the computer doesn't cause email to work the way that it does necessarily. And so when I think about music and I think about its sort of space in our culture, I want to imagine it not as an object or a social process necessarily, but a space of possibility. 
Uh, and uh, I mean, this is something that music scholars are really struggling with right now is like, what is music for? What is it good for? What is its social value? Why is it important? Why is it meaningful? I mean, there are lots of answers you can give if you um, believe sort of old liberal humanistic standard arguments, especially about, you know, high culture versus low culture. But if you don't happen to believe those, what is music um, good for? And so I wanted to imagine it as a space of possibility, um, one one modality through which people can come together, one modality through which the world can be endowed with meaning. And because uh, musical practices have histories, are located in communities of meaning, and are tied almost always to particular technical formations from, you know, um, from like sort of technicized notions of the human body and singing to very elaborate electronic setups. Um, I wanted to understand music not as this neutral thing and not as this totally determined thing, but rather as having these sort of tendencies in it that, that musicians and fans and other people can sort of wrestle with and either push back against or move in different directions. And so that's that's really what I was trying to do with it. And that's why I came down on the bundle of affordances rather than commodity social process or um, object. Great. And speaking of the potential to move in different directions, one of uh, there are two things that happen at the end of the book that I'll just mention before we close up. Um, the end of the book does a really wonderful job arguing for what you call a plural ontology and practice of audition. And also there's a really interesting discussion um, for any of us who are interested in the idea of an archive. And we, we sort of began our conversation with this, and I'll um, bring this in at the close of our conversation too. There's an interesting discussion of the issue of how to, or the problem of how to archive or not, or whether this is happening and it's largely not happening, the kinds of musical forms that are coming out of MP3 culture, including mashups. Um, and this is, I think, a really crucial issue and a really fascinating problem and an important issue for anyone interested in music history and the ways that music history moving forward is going to be shaped by the kinds of formats that are coming and the kinds of forms that are coming out of um, this MP3 format right now. So, Jonathan, thank you very much. There's a, thank you. Uh, there's a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich book, and we only really scratched the surface in this hour we've been talking. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Hmm. Um... No, at one point I was going to tell the story of J.J. Johnston, who's one of the people that owned the, whose name is on some of the patents for perceptual coding. Um, I asked him where he gets his idea of, uh, uh, you know, his understanding of hearing research, his ideas of um, what it means to listen, what it means to study hearing. And he takes me downstairs and he pulls off the shelf Harvey Fletcher's Speech and Hearing. Uh, I think it was a 1950 edition, but it's not that different from the 1929 edition. Well, it was a 1950s edition, I think, in any event. And uh, he says, well, it all goes back to Fletcher. And that's when I really knew that there was a direct connection between um, the living engineers I was talking to in this sort of earlier history that I'm telling in the book, because they're telling me that there's a connection there. So that's a really, you know, when I said uh, I went to living subjects because I wanted the tacit knowledge as well as the uh, explicit knowledge, uh, that's really, uh, it was a... Uh, 
Um, that was sort of a wonderful moment in the research. Also, Johnston was just a super interesting uh, and sometimes very funny guy. Great. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's been getting a lot of attention. You've been doing a lot of interviews. Mm-hmm. What's next for you? What project or projects are inspiring you right now? Well, I'm working. I'm working on several things at once. I've been uh, right. I've been slowly sending out a series of essays on different audio signal processing technologies. So, if MP3 is a model of human hearing in it, um, what do other technologies? What models of other things are in other technologies? So, right now, I'm finishing up an essay on auto tune and i'm very interested in the way that auto tune if you listeners if you don't know what it is just google it and you'll find a huge uh discourse on it um the way auto tune has this very deep connection to reflection seismology and searching for oil underneath the surface of the earth or below the bottom of the ocean and sort of what that can tell us about how we understand the relationship between uh um, putting notes in their proper places and extracting things out of their proper places as it were so um there's a signal word so i i have a whole series of essays like that i've been uh, reading and teaching a lot in disability studies and so i have an idea of a more sort of speculative book on disability and perception and then um there's lots of other stuff uh but the sort of long-term thing is rethinking the relationship between instruments and instrumentalities and it starts with musical instruments but i'm also interested in medical instruments and navigation instruments so um that's sort of the the next long term thing so i i have too many ideas and not enough time it's the, these all sound absolutely fabulous and i will look forward to talking with you again for the channel about every single one of them well thank so, you and <laughs> reading them so thank you jonathan it's been a thank pleasure. you so much yeah you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time